very uh, great pleasure uh, to welcome Takosa Stovagos from uh, Cornell University. She got her PhD from Berkeley and just last year published Sex and the Family in Colonial India, The, Ma uh, the Making of Empire from uh, Cambridge. Uh, and she's going to be talking to us today on Badalok Detainers, Prisons and Detention Camps in Interwar Bengal. Welcome, Durva. Thank you. Well, it's nice to be back. Um, I think many of you or some of you have heard an early version of this, so I think it, I hope it's gotten better rather than worse. Um, anyway, so I think as I probably told you, if you uh, when I came last, that this is a part of a larger project that I started now over a decade ago, but have, I've done much of the research in the last five years, so since 9-11, um, which is my way of saying that a lot of the post-9-11 debates and scholarship have found their way into this paper, even though I haven't intended for them to do that. Um, let me tell you a little bit about the larger project, which is that it's a project on revolutionary terrorism in Bengal, roughly from the 19, 1900 to the 1970s, and in particular the activities and changing ideologies of two political groups, um, the Anushilan Shomiti and the Jugandhar Party. Um, in the larger project, what I want to do is chart the development of this regionally based violent anti-colonial movement that emerged alongside the na larger national nonviolent campaign for Indian independence. And in focusing today on the interwar years, of course, I'm talking about this as one movement among a number that exploded onto the Indian national scene in the 20s. Um, they're well known to probably many of you. Gandhi is probably the most prominent, and then also the involvement of labor unions, of caste groups, and of peasant groups mobilizing in the 1920s and 30s. Why? One of the things that I'm interested in looking at is the ways in which the the kind of political violence that was carried out by revolutionary terrorists became a specific kind of anti-colonial protest that, that drew various kinds of responses. They were largely secret. They were organized in secret cells by students, young professionals, and religious leaders. And they were, um, they were groups that had been animated by the belief that political violence, and in particular blowing up buildings, trains, homes, assassinating colonial officials and colonial informants and robbing banks and post offices would overthrow British rule. And when I talk about revolutionary terrorists, there's a huge spectrum of, of ideologies, I, I guess I would call them, um, some whose main goal was merely to overthrow British rule. Others had much more ambitious plans in mind for what would happen when that overthrow occurred. For British officials, one of the surprising elements of this movement was that it originated from Padralok or upper caste groups of Bengal. And those were people who were most likely to have benefited from British education, were employed by the British government, but paradoxically felt resentful of the restrictions imposed by the colonial state. Stunned at the revolt of its most loyal cadres, British officials called these men gentlemanly terrorists, which was a rough translation of Padralok Dakat and grappled for over a generation as to how to deal with insurgents from the elite classes of Bengal, whose support had been crucial to the support of colonial political infrastructure. Um, by the 1930s, as you'll see, they're not surprised anymore, but they need to work out a specific resolution. These campaigns of political violence began in 1900. They intensified during the first partition of Bengal and continued with some interruptions until the 1940s, when India gained its independence from the British. There's been a tremendous amount written on about the first phase of Bengali terrorism, um, and I don't, I don't want to rehash that. I'll just start really by talking a little bit about the Defense of India Act in 1916, which probably many of you are familiar with because it's still used occasionally. It was passed during wartime to protect the British Empire from violent insurgency. Um, it allowed for the detention of suspected insurgents without trial. It prohibited meetings. It clamped down on the press. And it also allowed for increased surveillance <coughs> of communication uh, post, for instance. The act expired at the end of the war in 1919, and by royal proclamation, all those who had been detained were granted amnesty and released. The Rollett Commission, probably many of you know, attempted to keep some of the provisions of these acts alive, and Gandhi's first nationwide campaigns put a rest to what was called the Black Acts. Although I want to take the project in the, into the post-independence period, today I just want to focus on the interwar period, and in particular on the reopening of detention camps in the 1930s. By the 1930s, I think, as I've already said, for the British colonial state, gentlemanly terrorism was very much an ongoing threat, and it produced a barrage of repressive legislation that was defended as a way of protecting the constitutional reforms that had also been introduced in the interwar period. 
So detaining political prisoners was not, um, as for instance, Taylor Sherman has shown, and Taylor has written a dissertation at, at Cambridge about this. So detaining political prisoners was not only about exhibiting the strength of the colonial state to repress its subject populations. Detentions were also an attempt to compensate for the colonial state's visible weaknesses. And so to paraphrase her, the governmental regime, and in particular the system of prisons and detention camps, compensated for the weak spots in the state's authority. In the case of the revolutionary terrorists, the inability of the colonial state to secure convictions and to prove criminal intent and behavior in an open court produced an infrastructure of elaborate detention laws. So it wasn't an accident. Um, and I think I spent a long time thinking that these were contradictory moves, but increasingly I've changed my mind. Um, it wasn't an accident that legislative reforms that is, such as the Montague-Chelmsford reforms in 1919 and the 1935 Government of India Act devolved legislative authority to the provinces, while repressive legislation in that same period reclaimed some of that authority in the name of protecting a process of putative democratization. By the middle of the 1920s, surges, or what colonial officials called the recrudescence in ter terrorist violence between 1922 and 24, and again between 1930 and 1934, were dramatic. And they galvanized the colonial government to introduce new re repressive legislation to, suspect base to suspend basic rule of law, such as habeas corpus. In this paper, I want to focus specifically on the 20s when the colonial state opened several detention camps and they reopened the Andaman Islands to house its convicted and suspected terrorists. To house and detain those suspected of terrorism in Bengal, the British government created a network of detention camps which were considered distinct from jails and prisons with a system of rules and regulations that were specific for these detainees, these Pothalok detainees. Throughout, British officials were pressed by members of the British Parliament, by Indian members of the Legislative Assembly, and by Indian nationalists to defend the conditions under which they imprisoned suspected terrorists who had not been charged with or convicted of any crimes. As David Anderson and Carrie Elkins have argued about Mau Mau in Kenya, trials, special tribunals, and camps for political prisoners was a way that the colonial state was able to detain colonial subjects while simultaneously demonstrating its adherence to the rule of law. And I think probably David Anderson falls more on the side of that argument than Carrie Elkins does, but we can talk about that. Um, so I told you to start with that a lot of the research had occurred in the last five years. And in fact, as I was finishing writing the draft of this paper, I don't know how many of you saw, there was this piece in the front page of the New York Times about militants in jails in Morocco. Um, and, uh, and the piece was basically about how Islamic militants in Morocco who had similarly been detained on suspicion of crimes but not convicted, enjoyed a higher standard of living while in jail than the quote-unquote ordinary criminal, which I found interesting. Um, one of the things that I've been interested in sort of dovetailing off of that piece is how hierarchies in, within the detention camp reproduced hierarchies of life outside the detention camp, particularly as detainees tried to imagine what their lives outside the detention camp might look like. I want to try and get away from these contemporary debates, although obviously they blend in a little bit. Um, but let me just focus on the specificities of the 1930s. I want to argue that the practice of detaining Padre Log Dakat came with special constraints for the British and challenges for the supporters of militant groups in Bengal, constraints that emerged from a de certain degree of sympathy and resonance with the idea of being gentlemanly. To reverse a phrase that Tom Metcalf has used, gentlemanly terrorists were different because they were unable to cede to the state's authority, but because of their status as Padre Log, they were similar enough to British officials who were attempting to restrain them. In the first part of the paper, I'll talk about the constraints that the British faced in opening these detention camps. Um, and these constraints speak specifically to tensions between a colonial government that was moving toward offering provinces some political autonomy, some groups, some, uh, some ability to represent themselves in a political realm, while they also suspended a basic principle of law, which was habeas corpus. Some high-ranking colonial officials were aware that detention was illegal and that it reflected poorly on the putative moral and political authority of the colonial state. But lower-ranking officials, often those involved in policing the peace on the ground, felt that emergency powers legislation were highly successful and should be expanded. 
Many officials were, not, were anxious not to offend Bengali Padralok because they presumed that the success of any kind of constitutional reform rested on this elite and educated group. And so over and over again in the, in the correspondence between high-ranking officials, you see this language of protection being used. Um, and it's very consonant with what probably many of you have read, Agamben and States of Exception and Homo Sacco, that this language of protection being um, not only a rationalization, but a but constitutive of the nature of the constitutional reform. Thus, the colonial government were careful to distinguish detention camps from jails and prisons and distinguish the political prisoner from the quote-unquote common criminal, and that was the language that they used. In the latter part of the paper, Padralok detainees claimed their status was distinct. Well, they also claimed that their status was distinct from the common criminal in their protests over poor prison conditions. One of the things that I've, I've been struggling with is whether they did this to gain political credibility or whether they really believe that their distinct status is unclear. But I want to th think through some of these questions because of the consequences that they have for the kind of political imagining that these detainees had. Hunger strikes were perhaps the most dramatic example of protest, but we might also add petitions. There were also a, a number of well-publicized suicides that incited Indian nationalists across the political spectrum to challenge colonial detention of suspected terrorists. For Indian nationalists, prison conditions for political prisoners became a lightning rod, enabling the criticism of the inhumanity and illegality of British rule. The ill-treatment of political prisoners, and perhaps most famous was Bhagat Singh and Jatin Dash, galvanized mass support and allowed anti-colonial insurgents to highlight the hypocrisy of a colonial government that claimed to be offering political reform and detaining political prisoners at the same time. For politicians as Chitranjan Dash and Shubhash Chandra Bose, militant actions by terrorist parties such as Junganthar and Anushilan provided an opportunity to threaten the escalation of anti-colonial insurgency from nonviolent protest to violent protest. Although, however, neither of these men nor their political parties publicly supported militant actions. So for Indian politicians, the existence of militant nationalism was a kind of mixed blessing. It both was a kind of threat that there was about to be an escalation, but then it was also a sign that Indians perhaps weren't ready for civil society. They weren't prepared yet to engage in, in kind of open, transparent debate. It's the intersection of these different political fields, one of nationalist politics and one of a highly region-specific and caste-based politics that I want to explore today. And obviously these two fields are not distinct, although often their conversations happen in distinct ways. Although it might seem the prison conditions offered Indian nationalists a strategic opportunity to protest colonial rule, the kinds of demands that Padralok detainees and their supporters made undermined the claims of Indian nationalists that they represented all Indians. What I'm interested in exploring in this paper are the ways that caste hierarchies worked within detention camps and the consequences that these hierarchies had in imagining a new political order. So through a reading of memoirs, some oral histories, and accounts of colonial detention that detainees kept, I want to look at the ways that a presumption of caste affiliation structured some of the ways that detainees represented themselves and their political cause. So I'll talk... Um, about three detention camps. There were four uh, in total. One was Burhampur, but it was a jail that was next to, next to the cantonment. Um, 1930 uh, was the start of thinking about these detention camps. It's a hallmark year, probably as many of you know, in the history of the Bengali Revolutionary Terrorist Movement, and also a hallmark year for repressive colonial legislation. Although the elected legislative assemblies voted not to pass the following legislative acts, these votes were overridden by the council and state. So in 1930, there's a whole raft of acts, and I'll just tell you what they are. The Bengal Criminal Law Amendment Act, um, and it's passed to, to address, or it's called supplement, but to address the deficiencies in previous legislation, um, which was the Indian Arms Act of 1878, the Explosive Substances Act of 1908, and the Indian Press Act of 1931. The British Criminal Law Amendment Act of 1930 was later supplemented by the Bengal Suppression of Terrorist Outrages Act in 1932 and another Criminal Law Amendment Act in 1934. Um, on top of this, there were a whole series of ordinances, and the, and the difference between the laws and the ordinances was that the laws expired after five years and the ordinances after six months. And so every, you know, every so often you have these legislative assembly debates. This series of legislation indicates a certain anxiety on the part of colonial officials that they cover their legal bases and respond to the inventive ways in which militant groups were organizing. 
So for instance, the Bengal Suppression of Terrorist Outrageous Act in 1932, Bhadralok youth were prohibited from riding bicycles after dark or dressing like Muslims. And it didn't really indicate how one was supposed to work out whether one was a Bhadralok riding a bicycle after dark. Um, fingerprinting, which was relatively new technology, was introduced as well as a series of color-coded ID cards. And so um, the police issued with great celebration 16,000 ID cards that were red, yellow, or white. And so if you got a white card, then you could travel anywhere. If you got stopped by police, you happened to be a red card, you could be taken into detention. And, and a yellow card, you could be detained and had to be questioned. Um, although it was not clear why anybody would admit anything and opt to carry a red card around. So. Um, 1930 was also a banner year for revolutionary terrorist groups. So the Chittagong Armory Raid in April 1930 was followed in August by an assassination attempt on the life of Charles Tegart, the police commissioner, and that was in Dalhousie Square. The murder of Inspector General of Police Lohman in Dhaka. In December 1930, most famously, Benoit, Benoit Badal Dinesh stormed the writers' buildings um, and killed Inspector General Simpsons of the prisons. Um, between 1930 and 1934, revolutionary terrorists assassinated nine British officials and attempted political murders of numerous Indian-born government officials and informers. Three successive district magistrates in Midnapore were assassinated in the early 1930s. And so Midnapore became a dramatic example of what many Europeans perceived as a space of Indian lawlessness. Although colonial officials argued that this repressive legislation was necessary because of an increased cycle of terrorist violence, discussions about the detention of political prisoners had been ongoing throughout the 1920s, before some of the well-known uprisings of the 1930s occurred. One of the interesting things, um, as many of you know, there was a massive detentions and arrests uh, under non-cooperation. And in the 1920s, it was relatively uncomplicated for the colonial government to detain non-cooperation prisoners alongside these violent prisoners. But as the 1920s went on, and there was, a, there was an assumption for the colonial government that these were all um, subjects who needed to be restrained. As it became clear that these were distinct populations, the colonial government started to say, we actually need a separate class of prisons for these more violent prisoners. So part of it was about the violence that these suspected terrorists were alleged to have participated in. Part of it was also that, these, that they bought into the Congress language, that these were mass protests. And so these masses also had to be separated from these padralok, um, which produced, you'll see, an interesting set of distinctions in the detention camps. One constant concern was about how to pay for such detention facilities from a colonial state that felt financially and politically depleted. So although some of the most high-profile politicians were kept in jails and detention camps, the vast majority of detainees were in village or house arrest, which was a less costly way of imprisoning less aggressive political prisoners. Under village arrest, a detainee was relocated to a distant village somewhere in Bengal, and often it was a village that the British deemed was more Muslim, so perhaps less sympathetic to the detainee. And the detainee was required to live next door to the police thana in order to be under police surveillance, but without additional cost to the government. From the 1920s onward, due in no small part because of arrests made in the non-cooperation movement, the debate over prisoners and detainees became about the distinctions in their status as political inmates versus those of convicts. Discussions between the different layers of the colonial government focused on whether and how political prisoners could be spared from the rigors of prison life. And this has to do with the kind of labor that ordinary criminals were encouraged to participate in. By the 1930s, this discourse had shifted, partly when it came to Bengali Padralok who were suspected of terrorist activity. Unlike other allegedly violent prisoners, these were men who were educated, elite, and upper caste. Thus, they needed a form of detention that was tailored to their odd status as dangerous, but unproven, unconvicted. By the 1930s, British officials seemed to have more detainees on their hands than they could house, and new facilities were required. In Bengal, about 10,000 men and a scattered number of women had been detained by the colonial government. Um, about 1,000 to 1,400 of them were in detention camps at any one time. And there were three detention camps that I'll talk about. One is at Delhi in Rajasthan, the other in Baksadwara in the hills of northern Bengal, and, in, and the third was an abandoned building in Hijli near Kargpur. 
This was in addition to a lower security camp that adjoined the barracks in, in Barhampur, which was intended to be a holding station until detainees were shipped elsewhere. And the idea was there was a kind of scale of how close you were to Dhaka and Calcutta. So Delhi and Baksa were the furthest, whereas Hajli was more accessible. There was an implicit relationship between how violent a person was presumed to be to how far they should go for their detention. So Hijli, which could be reached in a day from by train, was for those who were considered less violent, while Delhi in the middle of the desert was for those who were considered in the most need of isolation. As one prisoner officer noted, Delhi was very inaccessible and surrounded by a local population that spoke only Hindi. And quote, he said, any Bengali who arrived in the area would be spotted immediately, close quote. These detention camps were also in addition to reopening the Andaman Islands as a jail after nearly a decade-long attempt at transitioning the Andamans into a colony of settlers. Most of those detained men were arrested um, and also charged of specific crimes. So, but they were charged in specific crimes by the terms of these special tribunals, which comprise one Hindu judge, one Muslim judge, and a British judge who determined whether the person could be detained or not. Of those kept in the Andamans, largely, and they, were, they had different classes, of course, because this is the British government, they, had, they were Class A detainees, they seemed to be highly dangerous, but 90% of them in the 1930s came from Bengal and were accused of participating in the revolutionary terrorist movement. While politicians in Bengal decried the injustice of mass detentions and the conditions under which Padalok detainees had to live, many colonial officials that the, noticed that the condi conditions of detainment were freer than for convicts. So they were allowed to associate with one another. They had outdoor exercise twice daily. They could read books and newspapers. They were, of course, carefully vetted. Um, they were supplied with clothing and necessaries by the government that did not mark them out as criminals but as gentlemen. Indian members of the Legislative Assembly found cause to remind colonial officials that the conditions in detention camps were less than ideal. So in 1932, Mr. S.C. Mitra, who was a, a Hindu member of the Bengal Legislative Assembly, inquired whether government knew, quote, that most members of the Padrilo class in Bengal have professional cooks in their homes to cook their food, and that such professional cooks are generally Brahmins, and in some cases Mohammedans, and Mogbabruchis, who have great reputations as cooks, close quote. He was very exercised about the question of detainee diets, and he asked in a, in a follow-up question, quote, have any professional cooks been employed in any of the jails in which state prisoners and detainees have been kept or in any of the detention camps? Is it a fact that, prison, that state prisoners and detainees have to live on food cooked by convicts who are either agricultural laborers or belong to a low strata of society, close quote? He was also concerned that these provisions needed to be part of the legislative statute, and he stated specifically, quote, do the statutes under which persons have been detained without trial make it obligatory on the part of government to maintain them according to their rank in life and their normal mode of living, close quote. In fact, the question of diet and provisioning was of constant concern to Bengali detainees and to the British managers of detention camps. As the superintendent of the daily detention camp noted, he spent a good deal of his efforts transporting vegetables and fish from Bengal for his inmates. He complained that the detainees at Delhi ate better produce and meats than the wealthy classes in the surrounding district of Ajmer. Um, so there's this document, it's a, it's a spreadsheet of Bengali vegetables, and it says Bengali vegetables provided to the detainees in June of 1932, and it listed eggplant, it listed them all in Bengali, um, eggplant, tomatoes, pumpkin, chinge, cordula, potol, spinach, potatoes, eggs, gur, um, ripe mangoes, green mangoes, fish four times a week, although they said they couldn't get ilishmat, but they were finding substitutes, mutton, eggs, milk, lemons, uh, ladyfingers, okra, okra, right, um, bedana, pomegranate. Um, the camp was located 60 miles by truck from the nearest town, so that, so that in the prisoners' petitions they often mentioned that the fish and produce arrived stale, rotten, or inedible. Um, and this became a cornerstone, or, or rather a motif, in the repeated petitions that the prisoners sent. Harry Haig, the Home Secretary in Bengal, was unmoved by the Legislative Assemblyman's claims, um, and he replied, the cooking, quote, the cooking both for state prisoners and detainees is done by convict cooks, who in, any cer in certain cases, at any rate, are professional cooks, close quote. The question of status dogged the detention scheme at a number of levels. A parliamentary debate within the House of Commons followed the one in the Bengal Legislative Assembly, and it highlighted some of these concerns that the India Office and the colonial government had to respond to. 
So for instance, um, one thing that, that again was a recurring theme in parliamentary questioning of these uh, detainee provisions, um, a conservative MP from Doncaster asked the Secretary of State for India why detainees, who he assumed were politicians of the Congress Party, were being given generous allowances when the salaries of the Indian Civil Service had just been cut 10%. Remember, this was in the 1930s. Um, Bracken, the MP, this particular MP, was referring to newspaper reports that Charles Bose and J.M. Shengupta were given, had been given 1,200 and 1,000 rupees a month, respectively, as their detainee allowance. In response, the Secretary of State responded that most detainees receive between 12 annas and a rupee and a half for messing for their food, um, 32 rupees uh, a month for necessaries such as soap and clothing books, and a lump sum of 60 rupees for betting and initial necessaries. He did note, however, there were few of the quote-unquote better class of prisoners who received higher allowances while in detention. Um, and all of the detainees received a fam familial stipend that averaged about 160 rupees a month. Men such as Bose and, and Shengupta also had their life insurance premiums paid by the government while under detention, as well as were provided with dentures and spectacles. Um, the question of the government paying for life insurance for some of its detainees provoked some debate and even outrage in some circles, but the Viceroy and Governor of Bengal argued that the government was obliged to provide these services to men of high status whose families depended on a certain income. In the case of Shengupta, you probably all know he, was, he died in, um, in the government's detention, so in fact it was remarkably prescient that they had paid up his life insurance premiums. Um, the government's officials argue the provisions for political prisoners should be carefully calibrated to their status. So those detained under, under the Bengal Criminal Law Amendment Act would be allowed to wear their own clothing and would be free to communicate with other prisoners. Um, in these open wards and cells, the government would provide a chair, a table, light for use until 10 p.m., bell metal feeding utensils, um, a thin mattress, two pillows, two sheets, four cases, two blankets, and a mosquito net. It also very helpfully provided uh, a list of things that detainees should bring with them when they came to report to detention camp. As a nod to the concern about washing clothes, quote, soap should be provided to enable prisoners to wash their own clothes, but if they're not accustomed to washing their own clothes, the superintendent of the jail should make arrangements for the regular washing of clothes without cost to the prisoners, close quote. Many detainees brought abundant provisions for their detention. Ernest Baker, one prison official who was stationed in Hidgley, noted in a letter to his parents, quote, We have 50 detainees in the camp now, and I was astonished by, beyond measure by the amount of luggage which they all brought with them. The first 20 of them produced 90 new suitcases and trunks, and all stuffed with brand new clothing, books and toilet articles, brought out of their monthly allowance of government money, close quote. Similarly, other officials noted that the coolies surrounding the detention camp were doing a brisk trade, bringing up the provisions of Padralok detainees. Um, I want to tell you a little bit about the space of the, of the camps, and then I'll tell you about some of the responses that the detainees wrote about their experiences. The Hidgley detention camp was in an abandoned building that had, in, that had been intended to be a collectorate near Karakpur. Because it was relatively easy to access, it opened in 1930 to house almost 300 deta detainees. It was on the grounds of a small military uh, sorry, and then there was Delhi and Baksa, which were in remote areas, and both were built on small military barracks that had been left in ruin. Baksa, which was on a hill 2,000 feet above sea level, was several miles from the nearest road, with the last mile a steep uphill climb. Delhi had a year-long uh, renovation, and it too was built on the ruins of an abandoned military cantonment and required a train journey of two nights, a bus for half a day, a boat to cross the river, followed by another bus through the Rajasthan desert. Daly's detainees were considered among the most in need of reform and correction. They were also among the most vocal in pressing for better conditions, because many of them comprised the leadership of the Jugantar and Anishalan groups. Indeed, in spite of its distance, and this is something that I haven't quite cracked, it, daily detainees were able to coordinate hunger strikes and petitions. They were also able to get all of the things that were happening to them in the, local in the national press. 
Um, in, the, in the late 1930s, in 1937, amazingly, they were able to, um, the three prison camps were, were able to coordinate a hunger strike. And so even though it was very distant, they obviously had means of communicating with the outside world. A member of the Indian police, Philip Finney, who'd been in charge of the Baxa detention camp, was sent to supervise the opening of the daily detention camp. In his diary, he represents himself as a police officer who knew some Bengali, had developed a good working relationship with detainees, and he had a keen sense of what Padrilok detainees required. He described himself as a gentleman. He hunted every every now and then. He went riding every morning. He prided himself on having a special skill in handling gentlemanly terrorists. So for instance, when the detention camp was being set up, he recommended the 20 gallons of water be provided for each detainee for bathing and five for drinking daily. The Bengal Home Secretary noted that that seemed an excessive demand when convicts and staff were only going to receive five gallons for bathing and 2.5 for drinking. Finney also encouraged that several open fields be made to allow detainees to play games and sports. And his enthusiasm for sports went as far as organizing the guards, convicts, and detainees in an annual sports day. And there's a flyer, um, you know, about the different events that they were all to participate in. The removal of Bengalis, Bengalis from their native climate to the <coughs> desert of Rajasthan enabled detainees to protest the heat, the dryness, the lack of green vegetation, and spaces for quiet reflection. In a handwritten petition written after a fortnight of being there, one of the many petitions, um, I should say, that the detainees subsequently wrote all handwritten. I mean, it's beautiful handwriting. Um, you know, and you can tell that this is really, these are very educated people. They're full of various kinds of references and so on. Um, the detainees demand, huh? Yes, they're all in English. Yeah, I, yeah, they are, which is interesting. Um, uh, the detainees demanded, quote, the reproduction of Bengal conditions, close quote. And they drew attention to how different the conditions at the detention camp in Daoli were from the camps they had previously been in, in Baksa and Hitchley. They demanded fans, noting that the high of 120 degrees was much higher than the average of 100 that they were exposed to in Bengal. They asked for a barber as they were unused to shaving themselves. They noted that they had no room for games and sports, something that had been available to them in the other detention camps. And they argued that the environment at Daly was, quote, like a bustling market where there was no privacy or seclusion for the students to go on with their studies or for the others to say their prayers and meditate, close quote. For added emphasis, they referred to in their legislative assembly debates, um, they added quotes from the legislative assembly debates to make their claims. So they obviously knew about the content of the debates that had gone, into, uh, gone on before these camps had been opened. The demands of the government to recreate local conditions for those who were transported to faraway prisons was not, I should say, unique to Bengali prisoners. And in fact, prisoners in the, in the Punjab and prisoners in Madras did much the same when they were transported to other areas. So for instance, when prisoners from the Punjab were transported to Madras, they demanded um, meat, green dal, tea, milk, sugar, and ghee for halwa. And, and a lot of it focuses around regional foods. As Taylor Sherman has noted, advocacy on behalf of the prisoners, quote, helped to draw the state into previously untouched areas of life, close quote. Officers at Daly responded that the detainees had been provided with hand fans and safety razors with which to fan and shave themselves, that the lack of space for sports was not a critical concern since Bengali gentlemen were known not to be especially athletic or physically fit, <laughs> and that their prolonged detention without the hard labor that ordinary convicts were exposed to was making Padrilok detainees, quote, introspective neurotics, close quote. <laughs> this back and forth continued for several months with disputes over minutia, such as whether the football field at Daly was regulation size or whether the average temperature was 110 or 120 degrees. On June 9, 1932, Minal Kanti Roy was found at Daly hanging from an electric cord at 4.30 in the afternoon. The conditions at Daly then became a matter of national concern. And what's very interesting about the suicide was that it occurred in June. It, it hit the national press within about 10 days, even though prison officials agreed that they were going to try and keep it quiet. Um, and that, of course, obviously also became uh, a matter of concern. While the camp's officials claimed that Roy had been secluded from other prisoners by his own request because other prisoners thought that he was a spy, the leader 
of the prisoners claim that Roy's exile, the arduous journey to Daly, and the tuberculosis that Roy and the majority of prisoners had contracted in the camp had ultimately worn Roy down. The parliament got involved in an inquiry about the conditions at Daly, and pressed by the oppositions, officials in Britain and in India were asked to explain why a seemingly healthy young man of 20-something had hung himself while in police custody. In the months that followed his death, the daily detainees carried out three hunger strikes to make clear that they were serious about their demands for better living conditions. Um, and these protests, again, made it into the national press. Prison officials repeatedly explained detainee discontent by arguing that the Padralog detainees were unprepared for the rigors of prison life. This was obviously an ironic argument, given that the detention camps had been created precisely to house this particular group of distinct prisoners, or as British officials said, the better class of prisoners, yet there was an, an assumption that this better class of prisoners were never going to be good prison prisoners, if that makes sense. Um, so probably much of this is not terribly surprising to you. And when I first started researching this project, I had treated the colonial characterization of the Padralok detainee with some skepticism, obviously, and some amusement. It, it replays an old stereotype, I think, that we know a lot about, the effeminate Bengali um, and the manly Englishman and so on. Um, and initially, at least given what the detainees said about what they thought their political project was, I'd presume that they themselves would be reluctant to draw them distinctions between themselves and other prisoners. Um, and, and, and some of that has to do with some of the ideas that they presented in their own writing. Moreover, I'd assume the prison conditions were, were merely a political opportunity to protest the repressive nature of the colonial state. I hadn't really thought that the protests over the supply of fresh fish and safety razors was really about fresh fish and safety razors, um, although to some degree it was. So in the last few years, I've started to read oral histories and memoirs and private papers of detainees. And I've started to see that the narratives told by the detainees discuss in some detail their feelings of a loss of status while in detention. So they comment repeatedly on having to do laundry, to cook, and to perform various kinds of manual labor. Some detainees made jokes about the menial labor they did, while for others, becoming quote unquote common was a source of pride. So although prison conditions were a lightning rod for anti-colonial activists and a prominent way that detainees could protest the colonial state from behind bars, these protests also characterized some of the deeply embedded constraints for the Bengali terrorist movement in framing their movement as one that was both revolutionary and potentially democratic. So I've read a handful of memoirs and some oral histories, and um, they have some common themes, but I want to focus on two in the final bit of my paper just to give you a sense of some of the things I'm thinking about. Um, one of the memoirs was by Borin Kosh, who is the brother of Sri Aurobindo. though he's probably very well known to a lot of you. Um, he wrote a short memoir in English about his incarceration titled Tales of My Exile. Um, it was published in 1922, um, and it's a detailed description of his experience as a convict in the Andaman Islands. The second figure, Trilokya Nath Chakraborty, crossed paths with Kosh and the Andamans, and, and it, he's a very interesting figure because he spent 30 years in jail. Um, although, and he mentions being in jail with Kosh and others, but no one else seems to mention him. Um, he wrote his memoirs, and this is, this is a big dividing line between the materials that I read so far. He wrote his memoirs in Bengali while in detention in Dum Dum Jail in, in um, 1945. Um, and it's interesting, his Bengali uh, is not, it's not particularly sophisticated. It's written the way that he would speak um, his life. Um, the memoirs were subsequently translated into English, and they're supplemented by the translator while he was still alive. Um, he died in 1970, and the road known as Brayborn Road was renamed in his honor. Um, he started, he spent 30 years in jail starting in 1908. Um, and ending uh, when he was released in 1946. And after independence, he moved to Dhaka and was elected a member of the, of the East Bengal Parliament in 1954. And when the election was set aside, he moved to Calcutta. In contrast to the conditions at the camp at Daly, the incarceration that these two men were exposed to at the cellular jail in the Andaman Islands was dire. Their incarceration occurred before the jail's committee report of 1919 and 1920, that recommended particular reforms for criminals and political prisoners. The imprisonment also occurred before the massive arrests of non-cooperation and civil disobedience, and before the colonial government specified particular levels of treatments for different kinds of prisoners. 
Having said that, their accounts of detention are very telling. And so Boren Kosh's memoir is largely about the experience of being in detention. Um, he has this whole chapter about the voyage out to the Andaman Islands, its foliage, its people, its topography, and so on. Um, Trilokyanath's memoir is, much a, is mostly about a political career in which he describes who he met, whose influence he came under, when he was introduced to Marx, um, how he survived underground, evading police detection. If Boren Kosh's memoir reads like a letter home, Trilokyanath's memoir reads more like a political manifesto. Both had very long careers in political activism. Um, Trilokyanath became a lifetime revolutionary terrorist, whereas Boren Kosh became a journalist and editor after his release in the Andamans. What intrigued me about their accounts are their differing ways that detainees related their time in detention, but I want to talk a little bit about how they identify with this idea of being gentlemanly. Boren Kosh's memoir imagined an audience of people like him, educated, elite, unused to manual labor. He described in detail how to grind oil out of mustard seed and how to make rope by pounding core into shape. One day, sitting alongside the other Bengali prisoners, he, he had made the longest rope, and they had a little competition going. Um, and he describes, quote, Upin Babu said, You must have worked then secretly at home, as if I, a scion of the House of Kushes, was no better than a dom, rope maker, or sweeper, sweeper by caste. The insinuation set fire to all the blood in my veins, but we were in the blessed land of prison, and I could only gnash my teeth and pocket the insult, close quote. He described grass-cutting as a desirable job, so, quote, My Babu readers might shudder at the idea of a gentleman cutting grass, but as a matter of fact, the work of a gardener, a sweeper, or even a scavenger was considered as a high privilege in this kingdom of topsy-turvydom. We've seen many Kayas, Khatris, and even Brahmins petitioning for the work of a scavenger out of the dread of oil grinding. The people who were given these works could at least move about freely, close quote. As many prisoners did, Borin Kosh worked out a way to lessen the punishing effects of being at the Andamans. By his own account, he was treated relatively well. He shared his allowance of milk with the guards, and he spoke English with the jail superintendent, who came to see him as an equal, quote-unquote. Thorilokyanath's memoir is perhaps more action-packed, and, and it's, it's um, I mean, he does a lot of, he has a, he's a busy guy. I mean, he has a lot of terrorists plans that he's involved in. Um, he came into contact with famous figures of the Indian national mo Nationalist Movement. He described sleeping in the same bed as Shurdra Sen, the mastermind of the armory raid, um, meeting Gandhi while in jail, and also discussing Marx with Shubhash Chandra Bose. He describes living on very little money, um, living on very little food, and traveling from house to house at night. His account of being in detention was relatively minimal, and he spent little time on the discomforts he suffered, although he did suffer from lifelong asthma and a weak stomach. He even noted that much of his time in detention had been before the jail reforms had made conditions relatively better for political prisoners like himself. His account of his time in the Andamans was that some of the detainees were respected because they were uncomplaining. They resisted the, jail they resisted the jailers and accepted the consequences. Others, and he singled out the Savarkar brothers and Boren Kosh, negotiated with prison officials. They flattered them in English, and they secured early release. While at the Andamans, Trilokyanath organized a jail protest with several other prisoners. They resisted repeated beatings, and several of them were given solitary confinement and received a liquid diet of rice extract twice a day for several months. Although Boren Kosh and the Savarkars approved of the strikes, they didn't actively participate, and so they were spared from the solitary confinement. His barely disguised resentment of Boren Kosh and the Savarkar brothers shows him to be a committed foot soldier in a larger battle, fully committed to revolution, and he uses the word revolution throughout, um, and enduring all the sacrifices that were required of him. Throughout, Trilokyanath represented himself as a man of the people, wandering through villages and living off the generosity of the local population. He befriended boatmen and coolies, who lent him clothing to disguise himself from the police. So given Trilokyanath's populist leanings, one might imagine that any mention of caste or ritual status would be absent from his narrative. Yet he describes how upon his arrival on the Andamans, his sacred th thread was removed. While living underground, he noted with great pride that the revolutionaries he, he um, associated with infrequently ate fish. They washed their own clothes, and they even 
forego, they even forewent trips, they gave up trips to the Calcutta Theater. So in a kind of list, it's interesting that in a list of sacrifices, giving up the theater ranks as one of those things. These glimpses of how the expected course of Trilokyanath's life was changed focused surprisingly on the privileges of the life he should have had as the firstborn son in a well-to-do Brahmin family if he had not become a revolutionary terrorist. These were no doubt devastating humiliations. But what's interesting in these accounts, and, and there's a number that I've read now, is that one hears very little in any of these accounts about the lives of convicts or the quote-unquote common criminals who are obviously serving these political prisoners every day in the detention camps. Because if you remember, Daly had probably 500 political prisoners, but it also had 200 convicts who were brought up there to serve the political prisoners. These accounts, in some ways, are perhaps not so surprising. It's undeniable that detention was difficult and that it produced self-interested demands for better treatment from prison officials. Having said that, what's interesting is that unlike, say, colonial Vietnam, and I don't know how many of you have this, read this book by Peter Zinnemann called The Colonial Bastille, unlike in colonial Vietnam, the detention of political prisoners in India didn't produce solidarity among the prisoners across class or regional lines. And um, what Zinnemann describes is very interesting, is that the colonial prison became a space for producing nationalist alliances. Although prison officials were always concerned that free association would allow terrorist planning to thrive among detainees from different regions, it does not seem that this was the case in interwar Bengal. If anything, caste hierarchies and relationships from outside became much more entrenched, and regional identities became that much more stark. And that's another kind of recurring theme in these um, memoirs, is that you hear these detainees saying, oh yeah, there were, there were some prisoners from the Punjab and there were some prisoners from Madras. We didn't really talk to them. So I'll just wrap up, in a, and it's a very open-ended um, wrap-up in a sense because I'm still working out a lot of what I think are the big themes in the, um, in the project. I have a lot of material, and, and I'm indecisive about the framework, so maybe I'll just tell you that now um, so that you can start thinking about that. Um, you may have noticed that, I, that when I presented the material, I reversed the chronological order. Um, so I started with the legislation and the debates surrounding the detention of suspected um, terrorists in the 30s, and then I turned to the memoirs of those who were incarcerated in the 19-teens and 20s. Um, in some ways, it's a very deliberate thing, and, and I hope it's a deliberate, I mean, I hope it works in the sense that um, I hope it resonates with what I think will be the larger argument in the book, which is that I'm not sure that there is, there's a prior. I don't think one goes first and then another happens. Um, one part of the book is uh, of the argument is obviously detaining the idea of detaining suspected insurgencies insurgents as a protection of democratic institutions, um, as British officials repeatedly argued. Uh, I, I don't think that that's that's uh, what's the word. I don't think that that's the way I want to look at it. Um, rather than treat the constitutional reforms and discussions over popular representation as something that was undermined by these criminal law amendment acts and ordinances, I would argue that the two threads of colonial reform were intertwined. British colonial officials justified the repressive acts as protections for the political reform process, but many Indian politicians, even those in the legislative assembly, rep repeatedly pointed out repressive acts compromised how political reform occurred. The other big argument, obviously, and so I, I want to make the argument that the two are constitutive of one another from the British side. The other big argument of the project is that revolutionary violence, however well-intentioned, is hard to reshape into a democratic politics. Um, I don't think that's so surprising. I'm interested in, in working out why it doesn't quite work in the way that people intend. One of the hallmarks of this movement was that it comprised Padralok, young men and some women of Kaist and Brahmin families in Bengal. Most were educated, with a large portion of the recruitment occurring in college and university. Many had never been expected to spend any time in a colonial prison or detention camp. The sense that the prison was a kingdom of topsy-turvydom, as Borin Kosh put it, was one that might have produced revolutionary change. Yet, as you've seen, protests over prison conditions never expanded much beyond what Padrelok prisoners should receive in comparison to other prisoners. The affirmations of caste status and hierarchy from within the movement, and there, there are more moments like this, make it hard to imagine how a revolutionary terrorist movement 
imagined it could be democratic when so many of its members treated their participation in the movement as something that was antithetical to their caste status rather than a hallmark or a responsibility for it. The idea of the gentlemanly terrorist was one that had some traction for colonial officials, and it also appealed to those who participated in it. And I think, as you can see, the, the, the idea that the gentlemanly terrorist was a special class of detainees was one pervaded the, the government's discussions. But noticeably, detainees did not distance themselves from such a stereotype. And so there's a remarkable degree of consonance between British and Bengali conceptions of the gentlemanly terrorist. I reversed the order of the two because I'm not sure which can, that we can argue really about which came first. I think that it's really that the legislation was a response to the detainee oh, I conditions. I think that um, it's important to see how the two were interrelated um, because in some sense I want us to think a little bit about the ways that this kind of protest produced hierarchies that were antithetical to its own aims. Um, which was getting the British out. In the larger project, I'm particularly interested in understanding how a politically violent anti-colonial movement could imagine a democratic and civil post-colonial future when this type of revolution was based on secrecy, on caste solidarity, and certain forms of piety and ritual, which I haven't talked about today, but I can address if you want to know more about it. Similarly, I'm intrigued by the ways in which the British colonial government offered various legislative provisions for representative government and self-rule to Indians, while at the same time suspending habeas corpus. For the British, the suspension of the rule of law was a way to bracket the threat to civil society and protect the emergence of democratic institutions. Mass detentions, however, highlighted the lack of legal authority that the colonial state had, a problem that even colonial officials acknowledged as they attempted to address the comfort of detainees. For Indian nationalists and revolutionary terrorists, then, the suspension of the rule of law highlighted the many hypocrisies of colonial rule, and it, and it gave ground to galvanizing public protest, although the protests over detentions only affected a particular sector of, of Bengali society. Um, there's a, maybe an epilogue to the story, which is that in, after the provincial elections in 1937, for the Bengali part of, or the Bengali Padralok, um, the release of the political prisoners became a massive issue. Um, it, became, it became clear it was an issue for nobody else in Bengal and that it, it was a very side issue and that there were, there were other parties, in particular the peasant parties and the agricultural parties and also um, groups that were much more dominant in eastern Bengal who felt that the political prisoner issue was just a non-start, it was not an issue. And so in some ways this was even recognized, I think, in the 30s. But I want to think a little bit, and, and the after, maybe the afterward to the project, is that I want to look at how these terrorists have been memorialized since the 1950s and the 50s, the 60s and the 70s, to think about how they've been absorbed into a nationalist story um, in a particular way that erases some of the bumpiness that I've talked about here. So I think I'll end there. Maybe open it up for questions.